0: Hello and welcome to episode two of my podcast. We are going to talk about site-specific theater. Site-specific theater is theater that takes place outside of a theater. But what that does not mean is I'm not talking about dinner theater and I'm not talking about outdoor theater like in ancient Greece or if you go anywhere like in a park, Shakespeare in the Park, where there's a stage and you sit uh, in stadium seating. I'm not talking about that either. Site-specific theater... Uh, is theater that involves the community. It is a community event. Site-specific theater requires that the audience is more than just entertained. They are involved and engaged. It requires more of the audience. Uh, for this podcast, um, the academic journal article that I read, uh, for Contemporary Theater Review, Uh, It's an article from 2007, so it's a little bit older of an article, but it still fits in quite nicely um, with the subject. And the title of the article is Performance, Place, and Allotments, Feast, or Famine. And that was for Contemporary Theater Review. Uh, It's an interesting look um, into site-specific theater. So first I'll kind of get into what the journal article said. Before um, I get into maybe more famous examples that you might have heard of. So, and uh, before I get into it, I like to give credit where credit is due. The author of this uh, article was Sally Mackey. Anyway, uh, so Sally Mackey's uh, article for this journal was about the feast festival in the United Kingdom. Now, uh, the feast festival was first just produced as a one-off. It was to take place in uh, an allotment. Um, this is not in London proper, but in, you know one of the communities um, that would have allotments are like parks. There's people do gardening. There's a little playground. It's it's a place for the community and. This was a getting together of artists, food, um, children, school children, and um, it was a project. So it was a year-long project, um, and it was used to grow and cook and celebrate a feast, which just sounds like a picnic, right? So how is this theater? How is this site-specific theater? Well, uh, a school really, this starts with a, a school that gets involved in this. It's because of the long year-long project design. Um, and it was organized by artists Claire Patey and Kathy Wren um, through the London International Festival of Theater, also known as LIFT. So there's our theater connection. Uh, the whole school, uh, it was a secondary school, was involved in this project. And the project was about artists Working with the students in the allotments, taking classes, rehearsing, so anything from arts classes to dancing to acting, uh, these students received training. It really, it's instead of being in a school, a classroom setting, you are, it's sort of like repertory, a conservatory training. And, um, it wasn't like a workshop you know, over a couple of weeks or a couple of classes and you're done. It was a year-long trial experiment, uh, pilot program. And uh, so this goes on and they're learning and they're growing and they're acquiring skills. And then it, it expands beyond just the students. The parents are getting involved. And this goes on for the entire school year. And it culminates in uh, performances. And these performances are uh, take place in the allotments. It's outside. So in building up through performance workshops, in working with artists, in working with um, dancers, in working with uh, visual artists and singers, actors, um, directors, there is a performance piece that is prepared and put on. By the children, by the students. And while that's happening on that end of it, the allotments itself, the location, which not only does it offer space, especially side note in this post lifting of restrictions, what a great place to have theater take place. It's it's a relatively safe way to do that. But anyway, back to the point. So on the other end, opposite of the performing, we have the allotment space. What does the allotment give us? Well, there's gardens, there's vegetables, there are cooks, chefs who are taking what the allotment is giving the community and they're creating dishes, they're creating food that they can feed the audience. So it becomes this community event, a little bit more involved than, um, Than let's say a dinner theater where you go and they just serve you food and then you just watch it. So the community is involved in growing the food, in in harvesting it, and then pulling it and making something of it, creating something. Then you have, besides what's edible that the allotment gives you, you have the flowers, you have the plants, you have all that that needs to be maintained and taken care of. That is also another part of the year-long pilot program. Uh, so there's art, there's food, and then there's taking care of the space, the land that is giving you this opportunity to grow food, to perform, and that's taking care of the plants and making it a healthy uh, allotment so that it can continue to provide for the community. This uh, event was very popular um, and it became a traditional event. I don't know what happened with COVID if I were to Assume just with everything else that's been going on, I would assume that it took a break for a couple of years, at least 2020, possibly 2021 as well. Um, But it is now uh, something that is a regular event and it has gone on to happen in other communities in the United Kingdom. Some uh, popular examples of site specific theater would be the Edinburgh. Uh, festival in August of every year in Scotland. Uh, The blog that goes with this podcast, if you read through it and scroll, there is a little, it's from The Guardian. And it's it's also kind of like this article. It's a little bit dated. I think it's from around 2010 or so. But it's just sort of examples of uh, the performance pieces that are devised and created and perform at Edinburgh, which is really cool. You can see a performance in the back of a van. You can go to a video store. You can go to a coffee shop. You can go down an alleyway. And, you know, it's a dead-end alleyway, but there's a performance happening. Uh, it's an international festival. You can see performance at 3 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It is a time when the entire world shows up in Edinburgh, and it's a time for no sleep. So that's one example of site-specific theater. If you've ever been to New York and have seen theater, um, if you've ever heard of Sleep No More, that would be site-specific theater. Um, that's when you, show, you the audience, show up to an abandoned hotel and every floor has been designed and, and creates a whole new world. Um, and then you, the audience member, wear a mask so that you, not... Oh, pause, let me go back. When I say wear a mask, I don't mean a mask over your mouth. Uh, This is uh, before COVID. Oh, you wear a mask over your eyes. Uh, There's cutouts for your eyes, obviously, but it's to give you a neutral position so that you are not part of the performance, but you may exist in the life of the play, which is a mishmash of Rebecca and, uh, So Rebecca, uh, Hitchcock's film, uh, with Macbeth, the Shakespeare play. Um, and so you, you go up and down the stairs of this hotel and on one floor, maybe a graveyard and you walk around it on another floor, it might be offices and you, the audience member can get as close as you want. You can go through the sets, props, you can touch things, you can go through it, um, And you just, you and the other audience members run up and down the stairs of this abandoned building um, that has turned into every floor is a different life of this play. And it's up to you to put the pieces together as you travel from room to room, from floor to floor. That's another example of site-specific theater. Uh, In the case of The Feast, festival in the united kingdom so we can see cultural capital would be what do you give to the community you give to the community a sense of taking care of each other and caring about the community the allotments you are giving children an opportunity to learn other skills performing uh gardening cooking and um and they're sharing that with their audience and the audience that comes and watches it how are they changed well there it's now a yearly traditional event and they're involved and um and it enhances the community it enha- it enhances the curriculum it enhances the life of the students what they learn it enhances the community because now this allotment is something that is you get what you put into it so you nurture the allotment, um, and it gives back. And so that's the power of site specific theater. Why does Edinburgh, why does the world show at the Edinburgh festival every August? Everyone in the world is going, why does everyone want to go when it's hard to get hotel rooms and there's a million people and there's traffic everywhere? Because you can go see theater, uh, in, a little corner area of a dusty antique shop and it might be something that's so unique and it uh, has an impact on you and it's something different. Or if you're performing in that dusty little antique shop and there's 17 people watching you perform. That's theater, that's cultural capital. And it could be there are 17 people from 17 different countries watching you do that performance. And you're an American who's just, you have five performances over two weeks and you're making, you are making theater and you're doling out cultural capital, 17 people from all over the world. That's why site-specific theater is so special and unique. For this podcast, I interview Stephen John, who is the head of design and production at Interlaken Arts Academy in Michigan. Uh, I knew Stephen from his time in California, where I am and where I work and live. Uh, he really made a name for himself doing site-specific theater in Southern California. And it opened up A lot of opportunities for him and like I said at the start site-specific theater is about more than just being entertained it gets the audience involved in a community and uh, Stephen SJ as we call him he definitely had that opportunity with one particular site-specific theater project and we talk about that and so without further ado here is my interview with Stephen John. We're with Stephen John. Stephen, if you can introduce yourself,
1: uh, your title, where you work, and then just sort of a summary of what that means for anyone who's uninitiated to the world of theater.
2: Fantastic. Of course. Hello, my name is Stephen John. Um, Most people will refer to me as SJ just because people mess up my name. It's easier to go by my initials. Um, I'm the Director of Theater Design and Production here at Interlochen Arts Academy and Summer Camp. So what that means is I teach all of the students who want to be designers in some way, shape, or form. So they want to be set designers, light designers, sound, props, costumes, anywhere in between some sort of maker. I am the guy who is their primary mentor and instructor. Um, I also teach, excuse me. I also teach stage management. I also direct at least once a year. Um, So I'll pick a show and I will guide my students through that entire process of designing and creating and making um, while also helping actors you know find their light and find truthful moments and do the thing that we all want to do so we make the theater
1: really thrilled to have you speak with me today is about uh the space itself and um and this study that we're looking at and we're presenting various facets on is cultural capital theory um, and how the audience and those the artists who are putting on um, the art the theater that there's a lot to derive from it there's a lot of cultural capital that helps the artist the the audience and the community really adds to the community Um, but it's knowledge it's we can assess it in ways that you can't necessarily quantify through an excel sheet in terms of you know, box office sales, there's more to it than that. And I really want to talk to you because of your experience and specifically um, site-specific experience. You have so much experience in putting on productions that are not in your traditional theater space. Um, and I wanted to really get into that and how you that reaches audiences differently and how that reaches uh, actors, directors, producers differently. It's, it's a different space. Um, so it changes dynamics. So if you could just kind of go over maybe some of your most uh, memorable or impactful productions you've done not in your traditional theater space.
2: (laughs) Um, um, So much of the theater that I've done has been in non-traditional spaces so it's tough to kind of wrangle that and say where you know what
1: Can I ask you how got started? How, how, how did you, was it an idea you came up with or were you approached? How did it even begin that you went outside of theater space to put on a production?
2: So, so my journey started in a very different way than most artists um, in that, you know, I did one show, two shows in high school um, and then didn't touch theater, got a job and did a bunch of other stuff and just found that I was missing something. And I almost joined the army. Like they had half of my paperwork, didn't have final signatures. Um, This was all pre 9-11 because I'm that old. (laughs) Um, And uh, I ended up, I was about to join and I was about to, like, they had said, cool, we want you. Everything's great. You know, all your test scores, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. But you... There's there's not a deployment going out. They were not accepting anybody for the next like three months. And then I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? And they said, I don't know. Go to a school. Go go to a community college. Take some classes. And I said, okay. And I ended up going to a program that had a great theater program. Um, and I fell in love with the arts very quickly. I found a home in it. Um, but that area of the country is very expensive. And so when I started making theater for myself um or for audiences but with with friends we had to find non-traditional spaces because we couldn't afford anything else um so it was a it was it was a need you know we it just had to happen that way and we started you know I've, i've rehearsed so many shows in my living room or in my driveway or in an apartment or in a park or just in any space that I could find, which serves the play in its own way, depending on the show, in so many different facets. So, we often, so one of my favorite shows that I've done in lots of different places is The Complete Works of Shakespeare Abridged. Super fun show, just all the crazy energy. Well, when you take that and you just rehearse in an open space along a busy street in downtown Fullerton, people stop and watch. And that's when you get to go, Hey, they, they ask, what, what are you doing? And we're like, we're rehearsing a play, blah, 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 this and that. And here's when the play is going to happen <laughs> and please come buy a ticket. You know, you're getting to see this rough version of it. Um, as we, as the sun goes down and we're chasing time, um, or we're being chased by time, uh, because we're running out of daylight and we're trying to get this thing rehearsed in as fast as we can. Um, and then it turns into, okay, we're building audiences during our rehearsal. But those are open to the world. Now, that show tends to lean towards the acceptance of that. You can do that. But if we're doing something heavier, that's not necessarily appropriate. We need more intimate spaces, and we find spaces. Um, you kind of beg, borrow, and steal with whatever you can. You, you make the art based on, the, uh, on what you can do, and sometimes outside of that realm, but you still got to make it. You know, when you're driven, you still got to make it. Um, So, like, I think about, I did a production of Jesus Christ Superstar with a small theater, theater company, but their space was a converted A-frame church. And that space was not meant to be. A theater in any way, it's set up in a lot of the same ways. There's a lot of the same similarities in that we have a forward facing audience in pews, we have an elevated space, so we have those things. But that space is designed for something very different. <laughs> um, and that show itself, you know, taking us out of the normal protective bubble that is theater and how people and audiences walk into a space. They have an expectation. They walk into a space and they know that they're here for an event and they understand that what's happening on stage is not real. They understand that um, there are actors and costumes and these things, there are current conventions that they require, right? For that, for that um, voluntary submission into the process. And when you do something in a new space or a space that they're not sure about, especially if it is related to the space in a way, um, like Jesus Christ Superstar in an A-frame church, right? We're connecting the dots here. And I, it's funny, when I toured that space and was originally pitching the producer, we had a different show in mind completely. And I walked in and I went, oh, no, I don't want to do that show. <laughs> it was the show was Quills by Doug Wright. Um, super dark, super crazy, cool show, but it wasn't going to fit in this space. So I immediately pivoted in the meeting and said, no, this show wants, or this space wants, Jesus Christ, superstar. Jesus wants to come back into this space. (laughs) You've got it, right? And we, we took down all of the curtains they had put up because there was stained glass in this church. And it turned out we didn't know, and they didn't realize it. The stained glass was was all of the apostles. Oh, wow. And I was like, you didn't even know this was here. And this is now a design element. We're going to light it. (laughs) We made light boxes from the outside. So when when Jesus comes forward and he's in front of, he's being judged, we light up the, as he's walking down between the pews, we light up the apostles. And it was fantastic. Um, But people walked into that space. Already on edge, people know Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. Hint there's no spoiler alerts, right? It doesn't end well for the guy. Um, but when you walk down and you walk into that space and you're like, it's a bare stage, there's a projection of the emblem that's just kind of slowly spinning, and you're sitting in pews and it's still a church, and you know that. And then the music starts and you hear this and you've got this heavy rock vibe and it's very different. And then you see all of these people come out and these actors come out and we intentionally did not um, adhere to any gender norms or racial norms that you're used to when you're seeing that show, because we wanted to reflect the socioeconomic racial diverse um community that we were performing in so my jesus was black so was mary and what was wonderful about that was on opening night you know we were get, we knew we were going to get pushback but we're forcing this thing and and making people think about this show differently and this woman gets up she sits in the third row and she gets up she walks to the aisle to show it just started we're still in the prologue um And she says, that's not my Jesus. And she walks out because he was black. And my cast reveled in that because we knew we were going to have impact in some way. We knew this choice was going to do a thing. And it wasn't because we pissed her off. We didn't want to do that. But what it did do was reflect our community even more. And she became part of the show in that the other hundred people that were there got to watch her bigotry. And her choice to leave, which is her freedom to do, but it made the event so unique, right? Um, And it just became, it just fueled our show in such a great way.
1: I was going to say, I mean, not only does she become part of the show, which has an impact on your actors and performers, it has an impact on the rest of the audience.
2: Oh, the top of the show. We acknowledge that these are actors. Right. We are people that are just going to play a role. That's it. Like, we have this whole prologue built in this dance and all this stuff that basically highlights that. And everybody understood it, but this woman could not get past that. It was great. <laughs> it was great for the show.
1: And moving on to as you were doing uh, more site specific theater, there's a really great example of uh, you were doing shows um, for an organization as a fundraiser. Ah. I remember. <laughs> Lots of, lots of uh, chatter around town about what is this? What is this? What is this? Like, Oh, this is ridiculous. And mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, what normally is deemed as a success is if you can just put on the show and then if you can not lose money during the show. But the fact that you did it as a fundraiser, mm-hmm. the organization made money, mm-hmm. you did it again as a fundraiser, and it became something that once you had left California, you were invited back to California to mm-hmm. do it again um really changes the power dynamic of oh let's just put on a show because of the art to we're not only going to put on a show because of the art but we're going to raise funds for an organization that needs donations to survive which really turned on its head in the community of putting on a show and what what success meant in putting on a show. So could you speak to that and, and how that kind of changed for you um, as a theater artist, um, this endeavor that you did, which really kind of rippled across the theater community?
2: It's interesting because I have no idea about any of those ripples. <laughs> we just did our show. Um, <clears throat> so I was approached by in the Fullerton chapter of Sir Optimus, which is like, the elks or i don't know some other organization um the lions club uh except for women and it focuses they it's all run by women and they all focus on things that are important to women in their community which unfortunately there's some pretty heavy topics that they focus on um one of the things that they do is they raise money and they took an entire two or three rooms in a in a hospital um, because when a woman is battered or raped, they get taken into this really sterile, cold, um, unwelcoming place for examination and for all these things. And more importantly, they they take their children with them if they've escaped from an abusive link, uh, um, an abusive relationship, or something. And now these kids who are ripped out of what could be their normal home that they understand, even though it's unsafe, are now in this really scary place. So they they raise money to re. Imagine those spaces and make them much warmer and have an area for kids and just make it a comfortable place where everybody can just breathe and feel safe for the first time. They also do a thing called project underwear, because when those women do run, they can get, um, all kinds of donations from the red cross or from organizations. But the thing that you cannot donate to those places is underwear. You can't donate used underwear. You can use donate a used shirt or something, but not that. So they have a thing called Project Underwear, where we raise a ton of money just to purchase new underwear for, for families and things like that. Um, so they came to me and they said, we've, we've seen your shows. We've seen some of the theater that you've done. We have always done like a runway thing with the members and their husbands. Um, so they came to me and they said, we have a show in a month. Will you, or we have this event in a month. Will you create a show for us? And I said, no, that's not enough time. Um, and I, they wanted this interactive dinner thing. And they were thinking about Tony and Tina's um, wedding event, extravaganza thing that you can do in Vegas. And there's a traveling group that does that. And so I said, use them. I'll come and I'll watch and we'll get a sense of kind of their flow and we'll see what they do. And it was okay. It was okay. It wasn't great. This was a company of actors who did this every weekend, probably three or four times, and they retired and they did not. It was so scripted. It was just, I'm sure they're lovely. <laughs> but it was, it really was. And it was purely commercial for them. And afterwards, sorry about that. Afterwards, I said, yes, I can do something. We, I have the right people to put this into play and we can make something really fantastic. Um, and, we had two months of rehearsal for the next year and we sketched it out. We had a, we had a rough outline and the only thing that we did. So we looked at their venue and said, okay, what's the venue. This is what we're doing. Great. So we did do a wedding thing, but we did, um, a redneck wedding. And so we had two couples, um, or a couple, um, her family was from South Carolina and his family is from Newport. They're Jewish, they're Christian. So now we have opposing forces in multiple ways. We have a lot of money and then we have South Carolina. But South Carolina is new money because they won the lottery. And like, we just literally pulled this out and created this as a team or as, a, as an ensemble. And everybody, we just started doing character work and we started doing improvs and we did like character speed dating and we did all these things. And all we did was create the opening moment. So we did the ceremony and the wedding itself. That was it. And that was the easy part. And it built and built and built and people were, there were songs that came up and things organically just flourished. And it was amazing could not have been prouder. It didn't help that there was an open bar and and there was these things that just made it, but there's also this silent auction that they always did. So we folded that into gifts for the bride and groom and things like this. So people were auctioning these things off um, or bidding and it just built and built and built and was so successful. They brought me back the next year and we did an Irish wake with all of this cool stuff. And we had hidden characters that were police officers that were actual waiters and plating. And then they revealed themselves and that thing took off and it just became a huge moneymaker for them. Um, In their first, what they used to make, they used to make like 2,500 bucks or so after costs. Um, Our first year, I think we were around five to $7,000. The next year we hit in the 20,000 range. Like it was ridiculous because tickets were selling and it wasn't even that it was, we built in the function that in order for them, because it was a Irish wake, it turned out there was a murder. So it was a murder mystery. And again, nobody, knew what was going to happen but we built in that they had to vote for who they thought did it and the way they voted was donating money to project underwear and people were just throwing cash into the baskets and everybody had like all my actors were like pining for somebody else no no he did it because of this and this and and making that interaction fun and engaging but again random spaces we start with the space and then we go okay how how do i see this place how do we as a company see it and then, how do we build from there? I think what people, I think what people don't realize is we have a great skill set in the theater, and it can't be limited to the box. Exactly. You have to take it out. I take what I learned in theater and apply it. I mean, I I teach stage managers. Every parent that comes to me and says, "Well, can my kid use these skills in the real?" Oh my god, yes. Everything they will do, if your kid never touches theater again, every skill that I'm teaching them in my stage management class is something they're going to use for the rest of their life. But we don't think about it when it comes to creating the art, like the actual product, blow out the doors and make something out in the world and engage people and, and force them to connect in a different way, in a way that they're A, not comfortable with often, which is wonderful because that's where surprises happen, Right. And B in just in just a way that draws out an audience that you have never thought about.
1: Director that you are, you you effortlessly arrived to my last four quick questions I would oh. ask you. Maintaining diverse cultural capital—it's
2: tough to say because the pandemic has has changed the rules. Um, and I'm at a, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm at a place where we maintained creating throughout. We did just as many shows as we always have. Um, We didn't lose anything. All of our stuff at the moment switched to online platforms, but then we were back in person, not open to the public, but in person still masked and things like that. Um, But what ended up happening is we did take our shows outside, even in the winter, and this is Northern Michigan. So those are real winters. um, When we could, Um, we did Death and the King's Horseman and we had an inside contingent with only 35 seats where normally there's 175 and then an outdoor space that was still only 35, but was lit by actual fire um, and things like that. So we, we don't care about that. So we do maintain the idea, you know, and I'm a big advocate for how do we get a different space? How do we change our perspective on this? Um, but out in the rest of the world, since the pandemic, I haven't seen a show out there. Because I do twenty four to twenty six shows a year here. Um, a lot of those are condensed because we do a student one-act festival that is locked into a space because we want to give them that first experience and then explain, okay, but you can blow out the doors later. Um, but then the rest of our shows, you know, we did um, The Noteworthy Life of Howard Barnes, and the whole thing was made of cubes because everything had to be six feet away and, and compartmentalized. So it changes the way we design, um, and, I try and I try and keep that in mind with my designers at all times. The idea that don't just limit yourself to what you know, think past it. Your job as a designer is to design and to blow it up and be huge. Your TD job, the T, the job of the TD is to figure out how to do it. So the thing I fight with my kids all the time is they're like, well, I didn't know you could do that. I'm like, that's great. Just tell me what you want and let me put on my TD hat and then we can figure out how it happens. And I might tell you physics are what they are and that's not going to happen today, (laughs) but right. The idea of maintaining this, this constant push I'm trying, I mean, my kids are high school kids. So the hope is that they take that thought and they internalize it, that theater can be anything. Um, You need an audience, you need actors and you need a story. Right.
1: Do you think building new cultural capital, which is through either through new artists or new audience members do you how do you see that now especially since the pandemic is that something where the opportunities are endless or or do you see obstacles in that or where where do you think we're at And, you know i mean it, we, we, there's always so much conversation of if the pandemic hadn't happened well it did so here yeah. we are
2: the it's it's funny you said something and it just Flashed in my head and it disappeared. But the idea that maintaining it with audiences and how, how that ebbs and flows is really important because I think the last two years has, has forced everybody to do theater outside and blow away doors. Great. Um, and walls, those are gone. But now it feels as if the audiences want to return to the safety.
1: Right.
2: And I don't know that that's something that I would do if I was producing. I I think I would continue to push out because you got them a little bit. If you take them back, they're going to really dig in their heels and not want to go back outside. Instead, let's take this as an opportunity to keep building and keep pushing out and explore the new things that we do. You know, I'm not a fan of Zoom theater. Not, not, not a, not a thing. I want.
1: The forehead look for two hours. See. <laughs>
2: also, I can't stare at the green light the entire time. I keep looking at you, which is horrible for, I know, I'm I, the same. I, we want the connection. Right. Um, and, but I look at that and I think, okay, what technology, what did we pull away from that. Everybody is very quick to congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back to say, yay, we made it. Yay, we did this. Okay. But did we actually learn anything? Can we take some of that technology and move it and use it in a different way? I don't know yet. It's still too early to say, but my hope is that by stretching some of that audience and saying, okay, theater can be different. We've lowered, not the expectation, but the boundaries to excellence, right? In that People expect a show, you know, people want to go to Broadway because it's all spectacle. Yeah. You don't need that. Truthful storytelling is what you want. It's, it's what our soul and our heart craves. So if we can do that while shiny lights are happening, great, but we don't need it. So my hope is that people take the time to actually think about what they're producing, where they want it to go, what they want, To actually achieve, and think outside the
1: box—that will be all of it. My third question was about, uh, you know, um, outlets for expression of political and social resistance and awareness in terms of theater, and, and, you know, it being not site-specific. How it really opens up the possibilities of that, and kind of piggybacking on your last answer—is, do you see? Because audiences are a little bit want to get back to normal, quote unquote normal, which you know that, that safety people are seeking. Do you believe that uh, you know the the political and social that we do we do express through our art will that be something that will be reeled in, or do you feel that it's something that will be more? You know, you can't you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Where do you think we're on we are on that in terms of politics and social change and the arts?
2: Oh, (laughs) I, I, I will not venture a guess, but I will tell you what I want. Um, I want it. I want that genie out of that bottle forever. I don't want it to be capped. Um, I was supposed to do going into the pandemic. I knew we knew what our season was going to be, and I was supposed to do Moby Dick rehearsed because it was going to be the first show I directed here with these high school students. And I wanted something that I knew really well, um, And in the middle of the pandemic, I don't know if you know this, there was this thing, um, the Black Lives Matter movement and some George Floyd stuff happened and some things, right? All of these things that were absolutely awful, but brought forward this perspective that the rest of the country was forced to grapple with. And I came back to the director of theater program as a whole and i said i can't direct a show that's ostensibly about whiteness and power and all of these things and and all you know so many different themes that just weren't necessary so I, i dug back into reading and i just read and read and read and finally came to twilight los angeles 1992 by anna devere smith and i said this is the show this is the show we need to do right now because what's happening Then what happened then is happening now, but now this is the next level of it. And these students who weren't alive in 1992, they weren't alive in that century, um, need to know a specific moment because we always think about these, these generalizations, slavery was this and police brutality is this and these things. No, this is a specific moment with Latasha Harlins and Rodney King. These are specific moments. And this is how a community responded. And we dove into that, um, and had an absolutely amazing experience with these high school students who told everything honestly and truthfully. And we had so much engagement and there was moments that were really hard for some students to deal with and grapple with because they saw themselves in characters they didn't like, or they saw their parents, or they saw community members that they trusted and went, oh, I'm starting to see the truth in you. And that's the scary thing. Right. So if I, if I take the bot, the, the, the top of that bottle off and let that genie out with these kids, they're not going to let it go. They're not going to put that bottle back on the shelf. They're not going to put the genie back in. They don't know how they're too cranky. They're too, (laughs) they're like, screw that they're flipping tables and, you know, rock the boat. Right. Just like we were 20, 30 years ago. Right. And so it's really wonderful to see that because I know they take that sense of um, that sense of um, activism into their universities, right. and they're going to force change there, which is great because then it's going to spread. Is wow. the hope fingers crossed. Maybe that's naive. I don't
1: know. No, I think I, you know what? I think it's, it's definitely something that is it's the natural progression because um, like the classic theater person. You are my fourth question. My final one was about how it enhances society. And I think you just stated it. That's how it changes. It, it starts with you're exposed to it. You, you do that theater, you learn, you reflect, which is a big part of hopefully the student experience. And then from that, um, that's how it becomes not just, you know, a history lesson, but lived history. And, and, um, and so I think that if you were to sum up for yourself then, since you answered on the part of students and, and artists and, and, for, um, and also for audiences, for you, how does that enhance um, as a theater professional, as a father, as a, an American? What, what for you in that cultural capital, that diversity, what does that, uh, how does that enhance you?
2: I think for me, I'm going to mirror kind of some of the things that we're seeing in the American theater right now. You know, I was raised to think, and rightfully so or not, I was raised to think that theater can change, can make change in our world. Um, But we're seeing with the change in leadership in the the regional theater across the country to more diverse faces, um, we're seeing that theater doesn't change. Theater starts a conversation. So I've started to understand that me doing this one show isn't going to make a huge impact in any way. It's the micro impacts that will have lasting effect. And I'm lucky because I do live on campus here. My son, who's five years old, is growing up in this community. And so he's getting to see theater and see dance and see and listen to music and go to film screenings and go to a a visual arts building for an opening for a gallery opening and he's his his world is expanding so much further than mine did at his age it wasn't until i was mid-20s where i started to really push those boundaries (laughs) funnily um (laughs) push the boundaries away and start to accept new things in a really open hearted, you know, fully wanting way. And he's growing up in that. So the idea that the more we can do that, the more we can, as our theater companies, the more we can expect that they're going to do those free shows for the elementary schools or the high schools and grab them early, just so they understand that there's something else. I think that changes it. It's all about, I do theater for the conversation. I love the conversation after a show. I love seeing what, or listening to how you perceived what I created. I don't take it in a good or bad way. I just love that that's different. I love then seeing your difference from somebody else. And if I can do that for the rest of my life, then I think that's going to have impact because you're going to take that information with you. You may never think about it, but it's in you at a cellular level. And, you know, we have genetic memory, those things move, which is amazing. So. I don't know if that answered your
1: question. <laughs> I was just going to say I think that was a, a great way to um, to put a period at the end of, of this conversation. I, I really appreciate it and um, and a wonderful perspective. I was really wanted to, to delve into this side of um, of you know the space itself, not just because you know, as artists it's all about me, 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 but I think that the, the space itself deserves a conversation. And so I was I'm so grateful that you were willing to have that conversation. Thank
2: you. Of course. It was wonderful to see you. Thanks. Thanks for having me.